0: So last summer, my brother got religion. Came out of the blue. <laughs> He's not the type. But he met Jesus Christ, and it changed him. I thought it was an act. You know, like a phase. You know, like that summer that we did, We really got into Call of Duty. Or, or, or a way to make someone happy. You're doing it for her, right? The church thing, I asked. No, man, he says, for me, definitely for me. Oh, and then he said, and it's not a church thing, it's a Jesus thing. <laughs> right, right, I said, like there's a difference. Well, it got downhill from there. I mean, weird music in his car. Some, some volunteer thing on the weekends, right when we would get together for fantasy football. Oh, hey, he stopped complaining about his boss so much. Uh, stopped going overboard on, on Friday nights. Um, don't get me wrong; it wasn't all bad. Oh, and last Easter, he he begs me to go to church with him. Oh, says it's not going to be like you think. Uh, you might even like it. Well, he's my brother, <laughs> so I put on a decent shirt and we went. I couldn't relax the entire time. I, 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 I didn't know when to sit or, or, or stand or run. <laughs> oh, I mean, there was a lot of singing. Yeah, well, afterwards, he said, So, how'd you like it? I said, I'm soaked in sweat. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Outside, I said to him, yeah, you know, I, I get it. The church thing, I get it. It's good for you. But, you know, it's not for me. Mike, he said. And he looked at me real serious like like, like he's going to tell me I've I got cancer or something. He said, Mike, you don't get it. It's not about the church or religion. It's about Jesus. Mike, listen to me. He ...could change your life. Well, I, we had it out right then. Right in the parking lot of his church. I, I felt kind of good, like I was talking to God himself. You're crazy, I said. You're worried about me. You're, you're the one who says you, you know someone who's dead. It's, it's like me telling you, uh, I, I talked to Grandma last night. Oh, yeah, she says you're nuts. (laughs) I'm not, he said. And uh, there's like a tension between us, you know. It's like I don't even know him anymore. (sighs) So, I mean, what's the big deal? He's into Jesus. What's the harm? I mean, it's his life. He, he could learn the banjo, he could buy a motorcycle, he could do some hippy dippy yoga, I don't care. <laughs> it's about the Jesus thing. You know, it makes me uncomfortable. You know, now when we get together, it's, you know, he doesn't push it. But even when he's not talking about it, it's like there's someone else in the room, someone who wasn't there before. And I still don't know if I should sit stand or run.
1: So has Jesus ever made you uncomfortable? If not, chances are you haven't really understood him. Most people are comfortable having a conversation about God, or faith, or spirituality, or even church, but bring Jesus into the conversation in a personal way, as if he's in the room, and that's when things get uncomfortable. Like the character we just met in our drama. When it comes to Jesus, we're not always sure if we should stand, sit, or run away. There are times Jesus says or does something so remarkable, it just brings us to our feet to celebrate in awe and reverence and wonder. Sometimes Jesus says or does something so profound, we just have to sit down and think about it for a while. And then there are times... Jesus says something so outrageous or demands something so difficult, it makes us want to run in the other direction and not have to deal with him. Can I tell you a ridiculous story? I just thought of it this morning. It's not even in my script, so translators, you're going to have to wing it a little bit. Back in high school, I heard about a prayer meeting that was happening in another youth group that was really powerful. I mean, the people who came were really focused, really serious about their faith. And, and, and I was all about that at that particular stage of my life, so, so I decided to check it out. So I drove a couple towns over to this house and joined a group of 20 or so teenagers and young adults crowded into a little living room for prayer. And the prayer was intense. And these people were serious, and it got more intense pretty quickly. It got loud. There was... Some shouting, there was hand raising, there was some speaking in tongues, and, and I was getting increasingly uncomfortable. Now, there was nothing bad or wrong about any of it, I just, I just wasn't feeling it, I wasn't getting it, and, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't leave, the door was across the room, I couldn't walk out the front door in the middle of a prayer meeting. So I, I slipped away to the bathroom to consider my options. I could go back in for two more hours of something that was going to get maybe even more uncomfortable, or I could go out the bathroom window, which is what I did. Out the window, jumped to the ground, ran, ducked beneath the window, got in my car and drove in the other direction. I've often wondered what that group thought happened to the weird young man who disappeared in the middle of a prayer meeting, raptured or something. I don't know if you've ever climbed out of a window or been that uncomfortable, but however you may be feeling about Jesus these days, he is without a doubt the most provocative figure in human history. No other life, real or imagined, has had the kind of impact on human civilization as that of Jesus of Nazareth. A third of the world's population, nearly two over 2 billion people from every nation on earth claim some sort of allegiance to him. And even those who don't claim that kind of allegiance still live in the shadow of his life and his teaching. Jesus is the reason we are all here today. Maybe it's it's your commitment to him or your curiosity about him. Or maybe like the guy in the drama, it's your connection to someone else who's connected to Jesus that has you here today. But Jesus is the reason we're here in the room today at this very moment, and that's good. Because as we're going to discover this morning, Jesus cannot, will not, and must not be ignored. The historian N.T. Wright puts it this way. What we know about Jesus is so unlike what we know about anyone else that we are forced to ask, as people did at the time, who then is this? Who does he think he is? And who is he in fact? And that question, who then is Jesus, as uncomfortable as it is, turns out to be the most important question you will ever ask or answer in your lifetime. Welcome to Vision Sunday at Grace Chapel. Wilmington, Watertown, Elex as we like to call it, Lexington, glad you're here. We call it Vision Sunday because on this Sunday each year we set our sights on on whatever God has in store for us in the year to come. Now typically we build our ministry around one of our three ministry priorities, going deeper, getting closer, reaching wider. And that's what we've done for the past three years. A few years ago, it was a going deeper year. We talked about being in Christ. Two years ago, it was a reaching wider emphasis, and we talked about living on mission. And then last year, it was a getting closer kind of year, and we talked about coming together. But we've also found it helpful every once in a while to take a step back and get the big picture of our faith, of our church, of our mission. And so four years ago, we spent a whole year going through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, September to June. We called it Living God's Story, and we had a great time with it. If you missed it or you'd like to relive it, you can catch it online or you can pick up the book in any one of our lobbies. So this year, we thought we'd take a similar approach and spend a whole year, 40 weeks, talking about Jesus. Jesus. Now, I know, I know, it's kind of like McDonald's announcing they're going to be selling hamburgers every day. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is always on the menu at Grace Chapel. (laughs) But this year, we want to dig deeper. We want to look closer. We want to take an honest look. We're calling it Rediscovering Jesus. Because as we're going to find out, whatever your experience with Jesus has been to this point in your life, there's always more to be discovered. Maybe you've been following him for a long time. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've been avoiding him for a long time. Maybe you've just recently become curious about him. Whoever you are, wherever you are, the series is for you. This year is for you. And if you have a friend or a family member you've been thinking about inviting to church, well, this is the year because every Sunday... It's going to be about Jesus. So we're going to spend a few weeks just kind of setting things up here in September. And then this fall, we'll go into the Old Testament and find Jesus in some unfamiliar places. That'll take us to Christmas. After Christmas, we're going to ask some hard questions about Jesus. Can we really believe he existed? Can we trust the Gospels? Then we'll get into the life and times of Jesus during Lent. On the other side of Easter, we'll, we'll consider what Jesus might say today to some contemporary issues or people. And who knows, we may take some detours along the way as well. It's going to be a great journey, but with that, let's get started. Today I'd like to take you to one of Jesus' first sermons. It was a sermon that made everyone listening uncomfortable. And I hope it makes us a little uncomfortable as well. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 14. We'll kind of walk our way through the story and then draw some conclusions at the end. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. So Luke tells us that after His baptism and temptation, Jesus returned from the wilderness, returned to Galilee, and began His public ministry. And the news about Him spread quickly. He became a popular figure. In fact, that word news that we read there in the original language is the Greek word theme from which we get our word fame. Jesus' fame spread quickly. And we learn from the other Gospels it's because he wasn't just teaching, he was performing miracles and casting out demons. And in these next few verses, Luke gives us a snapshot from those early days. Actually, it's more like a video clip from one of Jesus' first sermons. Let's pick it up at verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So Jesus didn't begin his ministry in his hometown, for reasons we're about to understand. Instead, he took it on the road, from village to village, around Galilee, preaching, teaching, and performing miracles. But at a certain point, he decided it was time to come home again to Nazareth. You might think about it like a college freshman coming home for a homecoming weekend and showing up at the big game on a Friday night. There's a lot of mixed emotions when you come home like that. Will it feel familiar or strange? Will people be glad to see you or will they be standoffish? People surely heard he was coming. A local boy who made it good on the rabbinic circuit is coming home. No doubt the synagogue would have been packed that morning. There would have been this sense of anticipation. I hear the elders are going to ask him to preach, they said to one another. Remember, these are the people who knew him best. They'd watched him grow up. Some of them had taught him as a boy. Uh, They'd been his customers at his father's carpentry shop. Some of them had played with him in the street. So he returns to the synagogue where he grew up. Uh, Maybe sitting in the very same row he and his family always sat in every Sabbath. And Luke captures the drama of the moment, describing how Jesus is called up. He comes forward and is handed the scroll. And he dramatically unrolls it in front of the people. I wonder what he's going to read, they're thinking to themselves. Now whether the reading was assigned to him or he chose it, we don't know. But he found his way to the book of Isaiah and what we would call chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this was a favorite passage for the people. It would be like a guest speaker coming to Grace Chapel and announcing that the text was going to be John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Oh, we love that stuff. Isaiah is describing a day when the Lord would come to the rescue of His people, when He'd deliver them from their enemies, heal their land, revive their spirits. The year of the Lord's favor was the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, when all the debts were canceled, when prisoners were pardoned, where the land was allowed to rest, and the people too, and it was a year for celebrating God's goodness. It was like a politician returning to his home state, providing, promising more jobs and affordable health care. The hometown crowd loved it. When he was done reading, Luke says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It struck me that suddenly it's very hip for preachers to sit when they teach. Jesus was doing it a long time ago. That was the sign of rabbinic authority to sit and teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, if you're a preacher, it doesn't get any better than this. Every eye fastened. People leaning forward in their seats. What's he going to say? And what he said blew them away. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Today? (laughs) They'd been waiting hundreds of years for the scripture to be fulfilled. This was the best news they could possibly have heard. Jesus wasn't just promising a better day. he was bringing a better day, not off in the distant future, but beginning right now today. The, Luke says, "All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son?" they asked. They were amazed. The kid can preach, they said to one another. They had so much that they would have so much to talk about over coffee and bagels after church. (laughs) Amazed is one of the ways people still respond to Jesus even these many thousands of years later. Even people who aren't prepared to call themselves Christians or believers can't help but admire the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. They tell us that Jesus' favorability rating is 89%. Now, if a politician goes over 50%, they feel really solid. 89%. Now, I should also add, he comes in third. Second on the favorability chart for Americans is good old Abe Lincoln. And you know who number one is on the Americans' favorability chart? Themselves. 93% 93% of Americans give themselves a favorable rating at being themselves, which tells you something about our culture, all right? I've got to believe that everyone in the room this morning has at some point been amazed, and maybe at many points amazed at something Jesus has said or done. There are times Jesus makes us just want to stand up on our feet and celebrate, and worship, and wonder. Like when he shows amazing grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery. Or when he interrupts a funeral procession to give a grieving mother her son back right in that moment. Or when he has compassion on a crowd of people and turns a little boy's bag lunch into a happy meal for thousands of people. Or when he dares to speak truth to power. Or to bear excruciating pain without a whimper. Or when he forgives his executioners. Or when he blows the doors off death. Who then is this? How can we not rise to our feet and lift up our voices and throw our hands in the air? And there are times... Jesus says something so profound, we just have to sit down and think about it. Like when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? Or when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will never die. Who says those kinds of things? How can we not pay attention and and dig a little bit deeper? Many of us have been so amazed by Jesus, we've committed our lives to him. We've entrusted our souls to Him. We, we, we name Him as our Savior and Lord. Now, whether this happened for you or not, I can promise you this. If you join us on this journey this year, you will at some point and perhaps many points be amazed at Jesus. Now, if Jesus had just stopped there, everybody could have gone home happy having enjoyed a wonderful day at church. All he had to do was close in prayer, say the benediction, and send him home in time for kickoff. And maybe that's what you wish I would do. But Jesus wasn't done yet. There was something else to say to the people of his hometown. And the thing he's about to say was going to make them and us very uncomfortable. Verse 22. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. See, a good speaker always knows what the audience is thinking. And Jesus knows they're already beginning to question him, to take offense at him. Who does he think he is, this Jesus? Isn't that the carpenter's kid? I mean, we've known him his whole life. You see, they admired his teaching, and they were all about the year of the Lord's favor. But who was he thinking he could pull that off? Who made him king or Messiah or whoever it was he thought he was? They were daring him to prove it. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he got right in their faces. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, The days of Elijah and Elisha were days of apostasy in Israel when the word of the Lord was not welcome or believed. The people in Elijah and Elisha's day, they were so far from God, so disbelieving, that even Elisha and Elijah could not perform miracles among them. They had to go outside the house of Israel to the Gentiles like a widow in Zarephath, like Naaman, the Syrian general. Was Jesus accusing the good people of Nazareth? of being as faithless as the people of Elijah and Elisha's day? Was he suggested that they were about to forfeit the blessing of God? That it was going to be given to other people instead of them? The people were furious, the text says. They were shocked. They were dismayed. If you ask me, they were appalled. I looked it up. I think they were appalled. It means to be dismayed outraged, or emotionally disturbed by something. Appalled is how you feel when a trusted friend betrays you. Appalled is how you feel when a spiritual leader lets you down. Appalled is how you feel when you find your favorite athlete has been on the juice. Appalled. And if you think that's too strong a word to describe their reaction, look what happens next. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now I've preached some bad sermons in my life. (laughs) But I've never been chased out of the pulpit into heavy traffic on Worthen Road. (laughs) What went wrong here? Why were the people so upset? Jesus wasn't following the script. He wasn't staying in the box they had fashioned for him. They wanted a Messiah who would bless them and only them. Not only that, he's implying that there's something wrong with them, that they were sinners like everybody else, and that if they didn't deal with it, they might forfeit the blessing of God. And that didn't sit well with him. They not only tried to run him out of town, they tried to run him off a cliff. And Jesus continues to provoke that kind of response among people even these thousands of years later. Some people are so appalled at Jesus, they want to expunge his name from the history books, denying that he ever even existed. Others want to ridicule him, to turn him into a cartoon character, or the punchline in a joke, or a swear word when they can't think of something else to say. The more common reaction is simply to keep him at arm's length, to acknowledge His life and teaching, but to keep a safe distance because to get too close, to get too familiar, it's very, very uncomfortable. And we can understand that. Even those of us who believe and follow Him. Because there there are times Jesus does or says or does things that that make us want to run out of the room to put some distance between us and Him. Like when He says, anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. What? Or when he says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and prepare to die and then follow me. Or or when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Sometimes Jesus can be so extreme, so demanding, so exclusive, There are times we want to say with the disciples, well, who then can be saved? Or we want to say with Peter, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful person. There are times like that rich young ruler to whom Jesus said, sell what you have and give to the poor. We just want to turn and walk in the other direction because what he's asking is too hard. All that to say, if you have never been appalled at something Jesus says or does or asks, you don't fully understand who he is. Or what he's all about. And this pattern of being amazed and then appalled. Of wanting to praise him and then push him off a cliff. That pattern is going to continue all the way through the gospel story. Jesus cast a thousand demons out of a possessed man. And the crowd is amazed. <laughs> no one has been able to help this man. But then the owners of the pigs come. Who's been hurled off the cliff. And they plead with Jesus to get back in the boat and go back where he came from. One day Jesus feeds thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. They want to make him king. Then he starts talking about himself as the bread of life. And people needing to eat his be- bread and drink his, 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 his blood. And, and suddenly people say, this is getting too weird. And many walk away and no longer follow. And then there's that bright, shining Sunday when he rides into town on the back of a donkey and the people welcome him like their coming king. And a few days later, they call for him to be crucified. Amazed and appalled, praise and push him away. That's how it always is with Jesus. You can stand, you can sit, you can run, but you have to do something. Jesus demands a response. And maybe in the end, that's the point of this whole story or at least the point of this message Jesus cannot, will not and must not be ignored. He simply won't allow it. He's the inescapable man. He won't go away. he can't be avoided. But here's the other thing: the moment you think you haven't figured out, he slips through your fingers. He won't be put in anyone's box. Jesus cannot, will not, and must not be ignored, but he will not be put in anyone's box. The people of Nazareth thought they had him all figured out. They're ready to throw him off a cliff because that's what you do with a false prophet. And then he passes right through them. How cool is that? I mean, this is like Marvel Super Comics. Did he go invisible? Did he jump into a wormhole? I think he just looked him in the eye and parted them like the Red Sea. How cool is that? And yet, how scary is that? Because if he can slip through their fingers, he can slip through ours as well. We who think we know him so well, we who think we have him all figured out, he could find something lacking in us and decide to move on to the next group. In fact, listen to Mark's take on how this whole story ended. Jesus could do no miracles there except lay lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Here's the real tragedy of that day. There was so much more Jesus wanted to do in his hometown. I mean, these were the people he knew the best, he loved the most. There were people on his mind he wanted to heal and help and set free, but he couldn't do it because their faith was too small, their vision was too narrow, their imaginations were stifled by fear and familiarity. And so they missed out on the good things that Jesus wanted to do. And the scariest part is that these were the people who were closest to him who should have known him best. Which is why we need to keep on rediscovering Jesus. Why we can never settle for what we already know, where we can never stop being surprised by who he is, what he says, and what he asks, and what he's doing in this world. Discovering Jesus is a lifelong journey. I first discovered Jesus at five years old when a traveling evangelist passed through vacation Bible school and said, asked, who wants to go to heaven and be with Jesus when you die? And I said, I do. And Jesus became my forever friend. When I was seven or eight, I remember going out to the shed behind my house and and getting on my knees and, and asking Jesus to forgive me for something I had done. I don't remember what it was, but I knew it was wrong and I felt awful and I needed someone to forgive me and Jesus could. He became my Savior. As a teenager, as my friends were getting swept up in social political movements, peace and civil rights and saving the environment, I wanted something larger to live for, some reason that I could give my whole heart to. And Jesus captured my imagination with the only movement that could truly change the world, and he became my leader. Years later, as a pastor, as a young pastor, I was overwhelmed with the demands of ministry. What was my role? How could I possibly do all this? I struggled with it. What do you want from me, Lord? This is hard. One weekend, I limped my way to a pastor's conference and discovered that Jesus is the shepherd's shepherd. And suddenly, I found the source of my strength and the model for my ministry. And then in my 40th year of following Jesus, I found myself suddenly in a very dark night. The Jesus I had always known was suddenly gone, absent. I was appalled at his absence. I was dismayed and disturbed. Where had he gone? How could he leave me? It was many, many months. But after those months of seeking and waiting and struggling, I I found him again on the other side of that darkness to be more near and real than I had ever known him to be before. The journey of faith is about discovery and rediscovery. Of following him to a certain place and then following him to the next place and the next place. Of always being open to the new next thing he's asking of you, even if it's Scary. It's a journey we have to keep on pressing because sometimes the people who know Him best are the ones who miss out on what He wants to do. Last spring we spent a couple of months asking the Lord to do more among us. And I believe this series this year is part of God's answer to that prayer. This year we're all about making Christ great in our imaginations that we might become more like Him, and that more people might be drawn to Him. I can't tell you exactly where this is all going to to lead us this year, but my hope and prayer is that at some points and many points along the way, you and we will be amazed by Jesus. We'll rise to our feet to praise Him, follow Him, serve Him. I'm hoping and praying at times we're just going to want to take a seat with Jesus in a sanctuary, in our in our Bible study group, in a living room, in a classroom, and learn all we can about Jesus. Amazed. But I also hope and pray that at points along the way, we find ourselves very uncomfortable with something Jesus is asking. Appalled even. So appalled that we're tempted to want to run in the other direction. But I'm hoping and praying that we will run toward Him, that we will run with Him into the unknown and the unfamiliar, and find him to be nearer and greater and better than we ever even imagined. Are we ready, are we willing to rediscover Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, hear the the longing desire of our heart this morning. We confess that there are mixed feelings, that there's joy and wonder and expectation and readiness, but also the knowledge that we don't know where you'll call and what you'll lead. So I thank you for the readiness of this congregation. I thank you for the many months you've been preparing us for this year and the promise of days to come. We invite you now, Lord, collectively, and we invite you personally and privately to reveal yourself to us, to do something new, to do something more, to surprise us or scare us or whatever it is you have to do that we might follow you to new and better places for your glory, for our good and the blessing of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.